How is it possible that it's already August? We hope you are enjoying your summer. Back by popular demand is our AirPods Pro giveaway. Members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts, which you get by becoming a member. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of August, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code bonus content, one word, at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code bonus content. Thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Riley Fessler, producer of the DSR Network of Podcasts. In light of the shocking death of Yevgeny Prigozhin, today's From the Archive comes from May of last year. The episode features a conversation imagining what the world would look like without Vladimir Putin. The episode also features originally members-only content, so if you want to hear more like this every week, be sure to become a member. Enjoy. 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Also in New York City, Michael Weiss. Michael is the news director at New Limes Magazine and the co-author of The Menace of Unreality, How the Kremlin Weaponizes Information, Culture, and Money, and a forthcoming book on Russian espionage. Joining us from Washington, D.C., we have Andrea Kendall-Taylor. Andrea is Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for New American Security and former Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia. And also in Washington, we have Ed Luce. Ed is the U.S. national editor and a columnist for the FT. How are you today, Ed? I'm good. Thank you, David. Good. Well, the reason I ask how are you, Ed, is because I want to do a little focus here on health-related issues, because inadvertently or otherwise, Michael has become an expert in the uh, health of Vladimir Putin, or at least in public views of the health of Vladimir Putin. Maybe you could share a little bit, Michael, on what you've discovered on this subject. Well, I mean, the short answer is I haven't really discovered anything except that there is now rumors about Putin's ill or terminal health have, have circulated for many years, much like the purported cancer that uh, Tayyip Erdogan, the president of Turkey, has, has been battling for the last 15 years. There's really been no evidence to suggest there's anything wrong with him. But even before the invasion of Ukraine and certainly thereafter, there has been a steady uptick in allegations and a, a slightly more of a drilling down into, into what might ail him. So I did a story based on a lot of these rumors, including the most recent ones, and also a bit of information that I did receive, but I just want to caution everybody, I, this is not something I am confirming. This is not 
by any means proven. And, and clearly the Russian presidential administration is not giving me a, a thumbs up or thumbs down on it. But what is interesting is a few weeks into the war, I received first an email by a Western venture capitalist who said, listen, I, I work with Russian oligarchs, and I have done for many years. And I was talking to one recently who suggested to me that Putin is in bad, a bad way. He's been battling um, a series of ailments, but blood cancer is sort of the most serious one at the moment. And I kind of rolled my eyes and said, uh-huh, sure. And I said, well, it's one thing for you to tell me you heard this. It's another thing for the oligarch to say it. And the guy said, well, what if I recorded him saying it? And I said, well, that, that would kind of move the needle a bit. And he did. And I can't really divulge who the venture capitalist is. And I was honor bound not to divulge who the oligarch is because that was the condition of me receiving the tape. And also from an ethical standpoint, I mean, the guy didn't just talk about Putin having cancer. He also railed against Putin's war, said he's destroyed Russia. He's taken us back 50 years. He's crazy. Uh, we all hope that he dies of, of his oncological problems and so on and so forth. So if I were to disclose this person's identity, he would be susceptible to state retaliation. And that's not something I want on my conscience. But suffice it to say, I was able to A, establish that it was indeed the guy who I'd been told would be saying these things, distinctive voice, and he more or less identifies himself on the tape. And B, he is seen to be close to the Russian government. And I had a former European security chief who said that in 2014, he was part of a select group of people mostly businessmen who were, had to kind of come to Jesus with Putin personally, because Putin was saying, I'm about, you know, I'm going to take over Crimea and you need to gird your loins for international economic blowback. And let me also explain why I'm doing this. Do you know, the, really the definition of an oligarch, it isn't just a Russian billionaire. It's somebody who acts as a plenipotentiary of the regime is kind of the public face laundering Russia's economic reputation, peddling influence, and so on. And indeed, most of this conversation that the guy had wasn't about Putin and his health, it was about how do I, meaning the oligarch, indemnify myself from the international stain that is Russia now, the pariah effect, sanctions, et cetera. I can provide affidavits from various banks in the, in the European Union and so on and so forth. So I found it newsworthy that these rumors have reached such a high level and also certainly newsworthy that somebody of this guy's stature is just quite down on the Russian president and, and is pining for his death. Andrea, you've uh, spent time looking at intelligence reports like this, and uh, you also wrote a good piece in Politico on a related question, which is, is Russia better off with Putin? And you suggest the answer is changing, and it may indeed be better off. We'd long thought perhaps what we would get would be worse. But let's first start with Michael's report. How do you react to reports like this? with a heavy dose of, uh, you know, be skeptic, uh, being skeptical, highly skeptical, because as Michael notes in his report over the years, there's been multiple kind of rumors or speculation about the poor state of Putin's health. He's disappeared from the public eye every once in a while. And so, you know, pretty skeptical that this is the case. Although I will say, given, you know, pictures of Putin's health, his distance that he's keeping from members of his regime, the very long tables, his gripping of the table that Michael also notes. There was a really interesting footage of a moment when Putin was meeting Lukashenko and his hand kind of uncontrollably started shaking. So 
there have been a lot of really visible um, signals that perhaps his health is not what it used to be. But it's, again, it's hard to know, is it fatal? How long does he have? All of those types of questions. But I guess, you know, the, the interesting thing in the, what, where I've done some research is trying to think through what happens when these longtime leaders die in office. And I actually did a piece, I mean, many, many years ago in the Journal of Democracy that was called When Dictators Die. It's not actually that uncommon for authoritarian leaders to die in office. And I think when we looked at the data from 1946, that there had been 80 authoritarian leaders who died in office. And you can just think about, you know, Venezuela's Chavez or Kim Jong-il or Stalin or Kenyatta or uh, in, in Kenya or Tito in Yugoslavia. So this is a common occurrence. And especially after leaders have been in power as long as Putin has. Actually, the most likely way that they exit office is from natural death in office. And there's been some really great work on personalism that suggests the longer a leader is in office, the less likely they are to be removed at the hands of insiders such that death in office becomes the most common trajectory of their departure. So it wouldn't be uncommon. And, you know, especially before the war, my expectation would have been that Putin would stay in office until he dies of natural causes. I think the headline or the key takeaway in thinking about what it would mean for Russia is that it's actually tends to be a remarkably unremarkable event. And that when authoritarian leaders die in office in a vast majority of cases, so when we looked at all of the cases, it was about 85% of the time, the same authoritarian regime persists. And even in these highly personalist regimes, which tend to be highly contingent or you know, depend so strongly on an individual. Um, it was something like in 75% of cases, the same authoritarian regime persists because all of the elite are looking around. They want to identify a consensus candidate who can protect their access to office. And so, you know, if he does die, the key question would be how impactful, how consequential would that be for Russia? In all likelihood, authoritarianism persists and we would get someone from within the same ruling elite who would likely be guided by many of the same overarching foreign policy principles that Putin is. So, Ed, before we move on to another subject, I'm wondering if you have a reaction to this, perhaps in the context of what if he lives? You know, it it looks like if he lives and this war continues in the direction that it's going. There are not many scenarios that suggest Putin will end up with more power or a better position or more global influence than he has right now, absent a role he might play in some global conflict, which would capture everybody's attention. But assuming that doesn't happen, it seems like he's on the downswing. What's, what's your thought? One of the most interesting aspects to Michael's piece, uh, which I thought was um, it was a very it was a very interesting piece all round. Was the possible motivations of FSB putting out this directive to bureaus around Russia that Putin didn't have cancer, which of course then immediately implants the thought into everybody's head. And what are the wheels within wheels here? And whether there are games being played, palace struggles going on, and there have been other signs of that. I mean, I am by far the least you know, qualified person here to talk about what an oncologist or an endocrinologist, I can't even pronounce it, would say, or what signs of ill health would be, even though I did notice the same hand-waving with Lukashenko and table-gripping and foot-tapping and puffiness in 
Putin's face and have the same hopes that, you know, maybe this nightmare can be brought to an end by the death of Stalin kind of situation. Oh, <laughs> that scene was replaying in my head. A dictator seeing a little note slip out of this recording of whatever it was, Tchaikovsky, Shostakovich, from the really annoyed pianist who'd be, who had her evening ruined, wishing him dead, and then he falls over and dies. It would be lovely to see Putin end like that. There is no possible way that Putin's power is being enhanced right now. It's, I'm sure, a very tight grip and a, a very chilling effect he has on anybody who is in any way discussing possible ways of sidelining or removing him or getting him to countermand this reckless war, this mega epic miscalculation, but that the costs of doing that are so high that let's just assume he isn't about to die and he isn't about to be strangled with piano wire. We're going to see a dictator who could, who's going to keep a, a tighter grip than he had before because he's going to be more paranoid. He's going to be feeling less secure. He's going to be more dependent on others, notably China, and therefore presumably more willing to make domestic threatening concessions to China in order to keep his power. We saw on Monday him meeting the regional CSTO leaders, five, five of them, only one, Lukashenko of Belarusia, was prepared to support what he's doing in Ukraine. The other four, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and Armenia were not pretty remarkable. These are near abroad, if not client states, then or puppets, certainly very, very close allies. They're not prepared to support him. We've got former colonels, greatly respected defense analysts on TV saying that Russia is geopolitically isolated. So I'm trying to think of a good way that a live, relatively healthy Putin can thrive in this job. And I can't. You also asked that question about, like, is is Russia better without Putin? And I think, you know, one thing to note from that piece that that we I with a co-author that I did in Politico was to try to push back on this notion that after Putin, it could be worse. Right. Because what you hear in the Russia community over and over and over is be careful what you wish for. It just might be worse. And so what we want, what I did in this piece is we actually went and looked at all of these longtime leaders like Putin. So these leaders that have been there 20 years or more, a lot of them highly personalized to see, well, what does happen when they leave? And we looked at, you know, the propensity for coups and protests and like larger state-based violence that include more than 25 deaths. And the moral of the story that we took away from the data was that actually these types of domestic instability are less likely to happen after a longtime leader leaves than in the latter years of a longtime leader's tenure. So we tried to push back on this notion of like, be careful what you wish for to suggest, you know, what might happen, anything might happen, but we tried to at least make a kind of empirical data-based argument that it's unlikely to be worse. And given Russia's higher levels of wealth and education, that there is some upside potential that you might see some liberalization. And what we found after these longtime leaders leave is although you tend to have another form of authoritarianism, that at least repression eases and there are some, there are some improvements. So I guess our moral of the story is it's for Russians to decide, but the U.S. and others shouldn't hold punches for fear that what comes next might be worse because we think that's unlikely to be the case. Interesting. So Putin is odious, horrible leader. One of the other world leaders that I've always felt was particularly odious is the president of Turkey. 
president of Turkey sort of won a little bit of kind of positive coverage recently as, as Turkey has come to the aid of Ukraine on a number of things. And then in the past couple of days, really, he sort of reverted to type and said, oh, no, we don't want Sweden and Finland into NATO because, I mean, essentially because their attitude on the Kurds is not what he'd like to see. Michael, I've noticed you've made some comments on this, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I, I gathered from you that you saw this as a negotiating ploy more than a kind of a roadblock. What's your view of this? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I talked to some uh, Turkish diplomats and Turkish national security officials who are not members of EKP, by the way. One of them joked with me that, you know, his wings had been clipped in the last several years, and then they realized that Islamists aren't very good at doing foreign policy and diplomacy. So they brought in some of the secularists to kind of revivify Turkey's position on the international scene. You know, Erdogan is he's he's prone to these temper tantrums, to kind of forcing himself into the middle of a conversation where he is or should be at best a marginal player. I see no indication that Turkey is about to veto the accession of Finland and Sweden to NATO membership status. You, you bring up the Kurds. One of the things that they're they're big on with respect to Scandinavia, it's not the Kurds, it's the PKK, the, the Kurdistan Workers' Party. Scandinavian countries have allowed a lot of dissidents and, and former PKK members to kind of pitch their, their, their tents in Stockholm and Copenhagen and so on. And so you have to understand, I mean, the preternatural obsession for all Turkish national security, and this, this cuts across all swaths of the ideological spectrum from the nationalist right to the, the left to the Islamist AKP party. They've been fighting this 40-year war with the PKK. They were really exercised when the United States essentially put all of its eggs in the basket of supporting the YPG in Syria as its main counterterrorism proxy against ISIS. The YPG is essentially just the PKK in Syria. So I think this is Erdogan's way of trying to wrest some, I don't know, concessions or get some kind of negotiated solution, which is probably going to be more of a sop than anything else. So I could well see the Swedes and the Finns saying, oh, yes, you know, we agree to tamp down on, for instance, pro-PKK demonstrations in Stockholm, of which there was one, I think, in the last few days something of that nature. But as you alluded to, David, look, Turkey's role behind the scenes in helping Ukraine defend itself is a lot greater than what what has publicly been broadcast. And that's for a reason, right? Because Erdogan has this weird bromance with Putin. Their differences tend to be the the narcissism of the tiny difference, as Freud would say. They, They see eye to eye on a lot of things, including their international isolation. That said, for whatever reason, Erdogan has been very bullish on helping Ukraine. The number of Bayraktar TB2s that have been sold to Ukraine, I'm not allowed to tell you that, how many there are, because I was sworn to secrecy. But suffice it to say, it's a higher number than is publicly known. And there were rules put in place. Ankara did not want these, you know, the attacks used or the, the sorties of the TB2s to be advertised, at least at the start of the war. But now they realize this is a great marketing tool for them because they want to sell these drones to everybody else. So now you've noticed, for instance, the bombardment at Snake Island. The Ukrainians have taken out air defense systems. They took out two, two uh, Russian cutters, I think a helicopter using these systems. Turkey is, it's, it's its own kind of black box, but uh, for whatever reason, and, and you know, I'll eat my words and, and proclaim myself very naive if this happens, I do not see Ankara spoiling this 
massive, massive development at the geopolitical level. I agree. It to me seems like, you know, trying to extract some concessions, get something out of the deal. But I also can't imagine that in the at the end of the day that Turkey would block this. Can you see Hungary blocking it? Anybody blocking it? No, I mean, I think that they've done all of the kind of necessary diplomatic legwork. They've done their homework, right? They've been active diplomatically in all of the capitals. I mean, I think they understand, you know, the risk that is involved in the period between the time that they put in their application and the time it would take all the member states to ratify. And I don't think that they would have moved forward if there were going to be serious reservations about having that ratified in, in national capitals. So my sense is, you know, there is overwhelming support. I mean, we expect it to pass our U.S. Congress is even, you know, ahead of the August recess. So, no, I don't I don't anticipate any roadblocks. You never know what Rand Paul's going to do. But, um, Ed, one of the things, and, and, and we've talked about it here several times, but there have been further developments that I find so fascinating about this is what it reveals about Europe that we never thought was possible, how it changes Europe. Finland and Sweden, historically neutral, have essentially run enthusiastically into the arms of NATO. I saw a story the other day about Switzerland tilting towards NATO after neutrality for hundreds, hundreds of years. Putin then made uh, very aggressive comments about what this would mean for Sweden and Finland if they were to enter NATO. And Denmark announced that they and the other Nordic states would, if Putin threatened Sweden and Finland, they would step up in a kind of a collective Baltic partnership. The Baltics have leaned forward on all of this. Meanwhile, Germany, not so much. Italy today announced that they were setting up ruble and lira accounts so that they could pay, or ruble and dollar accounts, so that they could pay for Russian oil and gas, which of course just plays right into the hands of Putin and keeping them afloat. The big countries of Europe are lagging the smaller countries of Europe. The formerly politically active countries of Europe are lagging the formerly more neutral countries of Europe. What do you make of it all, Ed? It's kind of the inverse of the sort of European core, isn't it? Because the other country, in addition to Denmark and Norway, that are offered Finland and Sweden, this interim de facto NATO membership, I mean, sort of mini mini NATO, if you like, that an attack on them in this period transition before they're ratified will result in, in, in their support. Uh, it's also been joined by Britain. So it's Denmark, Norway and Britain, as I, I, I believe, and one of the Baltics, Estonia. Britain, of course, has left the European Union and Poland, which is, you know, perhaps the, amongst the most muscular and certainly the biggest frontline state involved has been a bad boy of the European Union for good reasons. The European Union has felt very alienated from the, the law and justice government there. And then, of course, you've got uh, the Scandinavians have always been slightly indifferent European members, and not all of them are members of the European Union, Norway being um, the, um, the one. So it's the fringes, the ex-European Union members, and not the, the sort of core members of Europe, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain, that are stepping up um, here. They're being sort of dragged along quite reluctantly. Macron's role continues to puzzle me, even though he is a French president and there is a history 
a French president striking different poses and trying to carve out different roles for themselves. I've been particularly surprised since the, his re-election, when he's much more emboldened and empowered, that, that he's continued to try and provide a non-existent off-ramp to Putin, who wouldn't take it anyway. So that, that's puzzled me. Overall, though, in spite of all these nuances and these circles and inner circles, slightly weak inner core and very muscular outer core, um, I think it's pretty remarkable even how far Germany and Italy have come. Draghi has been, I think, proven to be one of the best European leaders in this situation. He's taken practical steps you would have found very hard to imagine Italy doing, overshadowed by Germany, which has clearly had a, a foreign policy revolution. And those who are pushing the revolution in Germany, the Green Party, are getting rewarded in state polls. And those who have been foot dragging, notably the SPD, have been punished in state polls. So the German electorate is setting the pace here. And the pace, it might not be as fast as we want, but it's remarkable given where Germany was a few weeks ago. So overall, notwithstanding all those nuances, I would say two things. One, Europe remains surprisingly united, and I don't see that breaking down soon even if inflation continues to get higher. And secondly, just from a, my own parochial perspective, it puts Brexit into context. I wish it hadn't happened. I don't think it's reversible. But the commonality between Britain and its democratic neighbours in the European Union is just reaffirmed so strongly by what's happening that it makes Britain's exit from that body just seem less less existential than it would have on February the 23rd. Very interesting, very interesting turn of events. And, you know, you see countries that were more pacifist being more aggressive, countries that were more left-leaning being more aggressive. The right wing traditionally tougher on security issues, but also has sort of ties to Putin dragging their feet. Not everywhere, because I never know exactly where Boris Johnson is at any given moment, and the polls have sort of flipped around. But the, 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 the change in the constellation of things is really striking. This is the moment in the show where we take a break and we say goodbye to folks who are joining us from the general public and tell them that uh, if you want to get the rest of our podcasts and the rest of all the other content we create, all you have to do is become a member. It's not that expensive, kind of like a cup of coffee a month. And you get a lot more content, a third more of every podcast, plus a lot of other content. And uh, so you'll probably like it, and we encourage you to try it. We're, uh, I think, in the midst of a, actually a record week this week in terms of new memberships, and we're glad for that and grateful for it. For all of your new members, hang around. You'll get to hear the rest of this episode, and we'll talk about what's happening now on the ground in Ukraine when we get back. Okay, so let's pick up there. Let me pick up with you, Michael. Uh -huh. um, as we look at what's happening on the ground in, in, in Ukraine, it seems like Ukrainians have uh, broken through in, in Kharkiv and, and, and the Russians have had some setbacks there, that Russia has made some incremental gains elsewhere in the Donbass, that people think it is less likely that Russia is going to be able to extend its power as it had intended to along the whole of the, the Black Sea coast all the way across and, and into Odessa and beyond that. Where do you think we are in this thing? Are we 
you know, at anything like a tipping point, or are we in the midst of a slog of some period? You know, it's funny. We're still a little bit caught in some of the, I think now, obsolete cliches of the past two months and change. I, I still hear terms like war of attrition, stalemate bandied around. And usually it without a real reflection on the granular battlefield details. And, and I mean, you mentioned the collapse of the Russia's Kharkiv front. I mean, I was joking uh, with former President uh, Tomas Ilvis last weekend, two weekends ago, that, yeah, it's a war of attrition. One side is being attrited and the other side is doing the attriting. And I can show you maps of where we were on February 27th versus where we are today that really kind of drive that fact home. I mean, look, it is true that the Russian positions are far more entrenched in the east. In the south, they will proclaim a massive, massive victory when the Azovstal metallurgic factory is finally cleared. It hasn't been yet. There have been, um, uh, they've evacuated some 300 Ukrainian defenders, but that could mean that there's anywhere between six and 700 still left. The Ukrainian government has taken the decision that we want to bring them out and get the medical care that they need for those who've been wounded. And we were going to do uh, some kind of POW swap. We'll see what happens there. But it was never really the case that uh, Mariupol was not going to fall to Russia at some point. The, the question is, what are Russia's strategic objectives and have they satisfied them? Well, the first was, of course, regime change, regardless of what Sergei Lavrov or Vladimir Putin or his security council will say. Absolutely. They wanted to decapitate the Zelensky government and install a puppet regime. They failed. And they failed largely because the United States did an amazing job at sharing intelligence. And the details of that are still coming to light. We can touch on that another, at another point. But now the real key is weapon systems the Ukrainians have been begging for for eight years, nine years, they are finally begin, beginning to get, including NATO standard howitzer systems, the M777, which the United States has provided. I think 90%, 95% of the, the guns that we've promised them are in the field now. Uh, and I'm already beginning to see the dividends of this. There's credible reports that the Ukrainians wiped out an entire company of Russians yesterday using art, American-made artillery. They're also getting loitering munitions. They're getting the kinds of things that will greatly aid them and greatly degrade the Russians, particularly if the Russians keep playing it the way that they have. You know, we've been waiting for this kind of massive reveal of a new strategy and down to the level of tactical command that the Russians are simply going to reinvent themselves as a capable and fit fighting force. Uh, the Guardian yesterday had a story that Putin himself has taken control at the level of colonel and brigadier, which might account for why they're doing so poorly, frankly, particularly if we circle back to the original point of this conversation, which is his cognitive and physical state. Look, if there has been one top line takeaway from this conflict thus far, it is we overestimate Russia at our peril and we underestimate the Ukrainians at even greater peril. They are creative, they're resourceful, they're resilient. And despite massive atrocities and the deaths of we don't know how many civilians, and we, we don't also don't know how many uh, military, because they don't keep those numbers secret. In spite of all of that, their morale is through the roof. And every indication is that Russian morale is in the toilet and sinking all the time. And that's based on intercepts. That's based on even pro-Russian bloggers who are now condemning their own government, saying there must be active sabotage taking place in the ranks that we're performing so poorly. Yeah. And Ukraine won the Eurovision contest despite a Russian effort, apparently, to hack it that was foiled. I mean, the, the Russians couldn't even 
undermine the opinion. Were, and, and the Russians were more upset about that. They were banned from the contest to begin with. They were more upset about losing Eurovision or Ukraine winning than they were about the fact that they, their forces tried three times to cross a river and failed each time and were completely wiped out. An entire battalion tactical group slaughtered by the Ukrainians who marvel at the fact that the Russians just keep coming like zombies. I think one commander in in Don, Donbass was quoted as telling the Wall Street Journal a few days ago. So it's, it's kind of extraordinary to see this play out in real time. Absolutely right. Andrea, I don't know if you saw the Guardian story that Michael referred to in which they refer to Putin as sort of taking command as a colonel would in all of this. But clearly there is a problem with command and control for the Russians. But there seems to be another problem. I, I saw our former ambassador to Russia, Mike McFall tweeted out a clip from Russian TV last night, maybe it was the night before, in which one of the guests on main primetime Russian TV show said, this is going really badly. And, you know, there, there was this kind of sense like he wouldn't be there saying that if people hadn't sort of given him or somebody hadn't given him some kind of support for that. I don't know if you noticed that as well, but your comments on, on all this. Yeah, I did see that on Twitter going around and watch some of that clip. And it really was remarkable for all of the reasons that you just said that they were he was very kind of clear eyed and gave a very sober analysis of just how poorly Russia is faring in Ukraine. And that was kind of the first time that I've seen something that was so directly critical of Russia's operation. The question, again, I mean, it almost gets back to Michael's story on Putin's health is like, I don't know what the motivations were behind that. And you can kind of come up with a lot of different hypotheses about why that was allowed to air on Russian state TV. One could be, you know, I don't know, you could come up with a lot of different reasons. It could be, you know, that there people are dissatisfied with the war. And so there's they've allowed this, they've green lighted it so that Russians to try to shift Russian public opinion um, to kind of see more clearly what's happening in Ukraine. But it's just as plausible maybe that someone believes that this is kind of a pressure release valve. And as Russians are getting data the sinking of the Moskva, the annihilation of the, the BTG crossing the river. As Russians are accessing little bits of information, it might become increasingly difficult for the, the Kremlin to uphold and maintain the charade that things are going at least decently well. So maybe it's just kind of this pressure release valve that to allow people some space to talk about it so that the anger doesn't kind of pent up below the surface. So yes, remarkable that it happened. But again, like I, I just have so many questions about what the motivations were behind letting something like that air on TV. I, I don't know. And Michael makes a, a really good point, which is some of our initial impulses with regard to this war seem to be outliving their relevance to the war we're seeing fought in front of us. And, you know, there was a sense the Russians would win in a couple of days. Then there was a sense the Russians would ultimately take Kiev and depose the regime. Then after the Russians were pushed back, more recently, there have been, well, just you wait. Razumov is going to go down and he is going to whip them into shape and there's going to be something different. And they're going to mobilize troops from X or Y or Z and they're going to come in and and. Yet here we are, 70 odd days into this, and the Russians pretty much net net every day are losing. The Ukrainians pretty much net net every day are winning. By any metric, the Ukrainians are getting stronger in terms of materiel. 
And as this gentleman said on this uh, Russian television show, I think, the Ukrainians say they have the ability to mobilize a million people. You know, the Ukrainians have greater human resources to draw upon, too. What if we're making this more complicated than it is and that we need to open our eyes a little bit and say, maybe the Ukrainians are going to actually win this thing sooner than we thought possible? You know, I mean, if, if Finland called up its full reserves over and above the 280,000 people, trained people in uniform, it's, it can call on. It's got 900,000 people available. Finland, with a fraction of the population um, of Russia, and these would be motivated, <laughs> trained, equipped people too. Well, I mean, uh, but I was talking earlier about Ukraine. I mean, in other words, no, no I, I'm just, I'm just looking at the sort of. Oh, I see the bar. You know, I'm, I'm just looking at the neighborhood for for Putin, with the exception of the, the use of the word attriting, and I got the point. I, I think Michael made an excellent point there, that we just keep being unable to desuspend our disbelief. Because it it just cannot be this bad. Russia has to have some has to have some reserves or some trick up its sleeve or some ability to to adjust and adapt as this war goes on. And it, it, we find it hard, hard to believe that isn't yet happening, and therefore just keep punting the date when it will happen. Uh, and maybe it never will. I had, I had a long talk with this with a Finnish. This partly why Finland's on my mind, but the Finnish. Um, diplomat talking about the winter war of, of 1939, where Russia was, you know, again, really quite humiliated. And Stalin held a two-day conference after this war, after the Soviets had withdrawn, a two-day conference with the generals to go over everything that had gone wrong. And there were adjustments made. And some of those showed up in the less ineffectual fighting record of the Soviets against the Germans later in the war after the, the pact had collapsed. But the level of corruption in the Soviet Union, or at least the outlets for spending of, of the proceeds of corruption, I suspect were drastically more limited. You know, they didn't involve the palatial homes in Sardinia and, and super yachts. And the, the system has been so hollowed out by corruption, and the cynicism is so deeply ingrained in the hierarchy an initiative is just so unrewarded that you, you'd have to change a culture. This isn't really about equipment, from what I understand. You'd have to change, revolutionize the culture of the Russian military to make it perform better. And that involves stuff that is challenging stuff that is sort of intimately linked to maintaining a larger autocracy. So it's unlikely Putin's going to do it. Even if he could do it, would he want to do it? Uh, hence, you have this situation where he's micro-planning the war from the, from the Kremlin. So I'm sure Michael is, well, I certainly hope Michael's right. But I, I too have this sort of back of the mind, sort of just lingering gerbil wheel going, well, the Russians must have something else. Is this it? Because it is so lamentable. It's so incompetent that you, you can't believe that's the best they could do. I rarely take issue with your vocabulary choices. But I don't think it's lamentable. It is incompetent, but I'm glad to see it. I want to go to Michael and Andrea to pick up on what Ed was talking about there. We've had conversations before, Michael, in which I've asked you to provide certain kind of prediction analysis, and you always rightly say, well, I'm a journalist. I report what I see. 
based on what you see and based on what you said and based on what we've just discussed, it looks like not only is Ukraine in a pretty strong position here, but it's getting stronger. Do you agree? I do. It has still maintained at least a sufficient level of international solidarity. There was a report in Politico Europe yesterday with with one very evocative sentence, which is that leaders in Western Europe used to fear what happens if Russia succeeds in its conquest of Ukraine. Now they are beginning to fear what happens if Ukraine wins. So in other words, what is the status quo with Putin and Russia when Russia has been just abjectly humiliated, its military has been hollowed out, its economy has cratered, is a weakened Putin, a dangerous Putin. This is another kind of favorite line that we're all bringing up. I mean, look, to come back to, again, the original point of discussion about Putin's health and how more to the point, really, the perception of his health, his psychological and, and intellectual well-being. One of the hypotheses for why people are discussing that he might be ill, if not on his deathbed, is that were he to do something quite reckless and catastrophic, like give the order to deploy uh, even a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, much less launch ICBMs at the West, that order would not be carried out because nobody wants to go down with the ship if he's a dying animal. And there's this kind of dawning consensus view that he has taken Russia back 50 years. What for, right? Uh, And who comes next, to to Andrea's point? Well, I mean, even the, the most hawkish elements of his regime Nikolai Patrushev, who's really an ideologue, cut from the same old old KGB, ran the FSB for, I think, eight years, six to eight years in the, in the early aughts. I mean, he's not stupid, and he would recognize, as, as a defender of fortress Russia, that the, the, the state of affairs is just untenable and unsustainable, that they would have to be some kind of accommodation struck with the West. And I think, look, the Biden administration, at the start of the war, leading up to the war, I would say, I think was a little bit tentative and fearful of escalation. And if we do X, the Russians will do Y. But as this thing ticks on, we continue to do X. And not only do they not do Y, they do Z, which is so kind of batshit insane, if I may say so, or just completely self-destructive, that, it, that it, it, it's encouraging. It's encouraging to, to us in the West. It's certainly encouraging, encouraging to the Ukrainians. And it is punctured quite a lot of received wisdom and mythology that has been built up steadily over the course of two decades, if not more, really. I mean, a lot of these ideas we have about what Moscow will do if we behave in a certain way that's seen as untoward, that's just a a kind of legacy of, of the Cold War. All of that has now, I think, gone up in smoke, which is allowing us to be a little more creative in how we want to play this. And that's a good thing, I think, because Russia was a danger. Russia was a threat. It was a menace. The Baltic states, the Eastern Europeans have been saying this since those countries joined NATO um, in the mid-aughts and, and, and onwards, that you know, you guys think you're fighting this war on terror. At a certain point, you're going to realize conventional state actors, particularly your old nemesis from the Cold War, is going to, they are going to come back with a bullet. And indeed, they have. And I think you know, our friends in, in the East have been vindicated in that um, prognosis. I'm sure they certainly think the other thing that is very clear is that they've always been very bold when it comes to Russia and their statements. Um, but they only seem to get bolder. I saw a Finnish public official or former politician responding to the Russian threat against Finland, who evoked the Winter War and essentially said, come on over. We've got a nice place to 
put your troops just like we did the last time, you know, and it was, it was very, it was, it was, you know, there was quite a bit of deeply believed bravura there. And one thing that strikes me listening here and that, you know, probably is a subject for many more podcasts, Andrea, but as it happens, I sit at my desk and I'm, there are books everywhere. And one of the books over my desk is a book called The Sword and the Shield, which is uh, about the archives of the KGB, and um, I found, which I found an interesting book. But, you know, if, if Putin falls and some of these other guys fall, I imagine there's a whole lot of people in Europe who are going to be real uncomfortable with the release of files about corruption in Russia. And they're, they're going to be a lot of friends, a lot of big companies, a lot of European groups. What do you think of that, Andrea? I think that's probably true. I mean, we know that these networks permeate all of Europe. It's part of the reason why there's been such a, an accommodation and kind of lack of opposition to Russia over the years, despite its continued aggression 2014, yeah, or 2014 but even before that. 2008, Georgia, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, that is true. But the one point of optimism, if we can try to end on an optimistic note, is you know that, that, that this war has catalyzed and set in motion a lot of positive development. So we talked about Finland and Sweden joining NATO. But I also think kind of the early steps on the counter-kleptocracy, right? There were so many early efforts that we've seen in the United States, in the UK, all across the European Union to try to close up these loopholes in our own legal systems, to go after illicit wealth of these oligarchs. You know, the United States now has this klepto capture initiative. So the the thing about these personalist dictators is they make mistakes, right? They're the most prone of any regime type to make mistakes. And so now it's incumbent on the United States and Europe to be able to exploit those mistakes to try to catalyze um, more cohesion and to set in motion a lot of the types of actions, uh, anti-corruption being one of them, um, that we should have done years ago. And so I guess, yes, there's probably a lot of people that would be very worried about what would be released. But the positive piece is I think this has set in motion efforts that we should should have been taking for a very long time, including on the anti-corruption. And I'm positive that that will continue and will help build the resilience of our societies to future Russian aggression and efforts to undermine our own institutions later. You know, Ed, I have this kind of lightheaded feeling. I know you've gone through the whole COVID thing, and maybe I'm ill because I'm starting to feel sort of cautious optimism here listening to these guys. Is that a symptom? There are home kit testing things for this, David. Yeah, to test in case you're feeling cautiously optimistic. Yeah, there's a control line and there's a... <laughs> no, I think there's, there's pretty good grounds for it. I mean, you know, get, get reducing our dependency on petro states, which tend to be autocratic, you know, it's the other part of this. That's true. And, and assault on kleptocracy, which I hope is not sort of pretzel-shaped as uh, some of the regulations in Britain have been just to target the Russian ones, because there are other kleptocrats around that are corrupting our systems too. But if, if, we, if we see uh, you know, a switch, an accelerated switch to alternative energy or to less dirty sources of, of fossil fuel, um, such as LNG, on the energy front, and we see a cleaning up, a tightening up of what have been incredibly lax, sort of thick red welcome mats 
for the global, for the world's kleptocrats in places like Britain and the United States, then, and I think we are seeing this, um, then, you know, there are grounds for cautious, for cautious optimism, but we're going to need, you know, to borrow and probably torture to death your analogy. We're going to need a lot of booster shots going forward. I and mean, this isn't, this isn't enough. This is a, this is a beginning and it's been forced by an emergency, but we need to make this a more sustained switch that'll be permanently bad for the world's autocrats. Totally agree. Excellent place to end. Very, very grateful. We'll be joined by Andrea Kendall Taylor and follow her writings. She's at the Center for New American Security. Michael Weiss, of course, news director at New Lines Magazine, Ed, national editor and columnist at the Financial Times. All three very important voices in following and understanding not just this war, but what's happening more broadly. And of course, we'll keep tracking these things here. And we hope you'll join us back later this week and ensuing weeks here at the DSR Network. Thank you very much, everybody. And thank you, the three of you, for joining us. Bye-bye.